you look down again at that passage, uh, one, uh, 2 Chronicles 21, uh, it's not the most familiar Bible story. So have a look down, familiarise yourself with the story, and then we'll, we'll get into it. So ignore the names, the big names. The main one you need to know is Jehoram. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. And if I'm confident, then you'll all believe that's how it should be pronounced. Um, thanks for your invitation. It's good to be back, uh, back up home, back in Rotherham. Uh, we've been back for the weekend. Uh, my home church had its 90th anniversary yesterday, um, and we had a celebration, a, a Thanksgiving service, really, thank, thanking God for 90 years um, of sustaining his people, of gospel outreach, uh, and it was very, it was just a really encouraging day. Um, and it's good to be uh, back here uh, with, with you guys again. Um, lots of friends, lots of friendly faces. Um, and so it's good to be with you. And we're going to look, uh, as we continue the series you've been doing over the summer, uh, Big People Who Make Big Mistakes. Um, and I took a little bit of license with the title, because uh, I, I thought what Rich was asking was for like, you know, famous people in the Bible who made big mistakes. And I thought, well, if he's a king, he's got to be a big person to some extent. So King Jehoram. Hands up if you've ever heard of King Jehoram. Oh, a few. A few. If you're anything like me, I, I was reading through uh, Chronicles a few months back, um, and sort of in my daily Bible readings, and I came across, I got to 2 Chronicles 21, and this one line um, just shouted out at me. You know, sometimes you're just reading something and it just almost bowls you over. Uh, just at the end of the reading we had uh, from Claire before, uh, down in verse 20, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. He passed away to no one's regret. What a sad description. Can you imagine passing away that nobody regretted it? And that's what stepped out of me and I thought, why is that? Why is it that a man, a king, can die and not a single person will re regret it? I don't know if you heard the story uh, a few months ago on the news of a guy called James McConnell. He was 70, 70 years old and he was in a, a nursing home, uh, and he died, and, which, you know, was sad. And they came to organise his funeral, and the staff at the nursing home realised that he didn't really have any family, and he didn't really have any friends. In fact, as they were organising this funeral service, they realised that nobody was actually going to turn up. This guy had no connections, no friends, no family. And... This, uh, the news got out that they, you know, they, were, they were struggling. Um, you know, can we really put a funeral service on for this guy? Is, is there any point? Um, and what they did find out as they looked into his past uh, was that he'd been in the, the Royal Marines. And the guy that was charged with leading his funeral service, a guy called Bob Mason, got on Facebook and started putting out some feelers to, to the Marines um, and just to anybody really telling the story of, of James McConnell. And what happened was, through Facebook, 200 people rocked up at this guy's funeral. 200 people that had never met him, had never spent any time with him, had no idea who he was, but had just heard the story of this guy who was going to have a funeral service with no one there. So 200 randomers turned up at this guy's funeral, and the Royal Marines heard about it and sent uh, one of their bands 
to play at the funeral. They played the, the last post. Um, the two buglers, that's how the, the service finished. Two buglers playing the, the last post. And it's, it's a great story. I, I, it's one of those stories that sort of warms your heart a little bit, you know, restores your faith in human nature. There are nice people out there. Um, but I wonder, I wonder how you will be remembered. I'm guessing the fact that you're here, most of you are sat with other people. I'm assuming you're not sat next to complete randomers. Very few people do that, come into a building and sit next to somebody completely random. I wonder how you want to be remembered. Probably not uh, as James McConnell was, as remembered as somebody who nobody knew, despite how well his funeral service turned out. How do you want to be remembered? Maybe it's, uh, or maybe when you were younger, it was as a, a great footballer. Um, maybe it's as, you know, something a little bit more closer to home, a good wife or a good husband. Somebody who was kind or somebody who was gentle, somebody who was strong, somebody who could be depended upon. I wonder what your legacy will be. There are famous legacies, both good and bad. So if I mention Neil Armstrong to you, you may think, well, when, because I think he's still alive, when he dies, his, his legacy will be, he'll be the first man that walks on the moon, forever. He will always be remembered as the first man to walk on the moon. That's, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a great thing, isn't it? However, his namesake, Lance Armstrong, will probably for a long time be remembered as one of the biggest cheats in sporting history. There are, there are different types of legacy. How will you be remembered? Chances are, and, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, and I don't mean to be rude, but chances are your legacy will not be quite as uh, famous or infamous as either Neil or Lance Armstrong. And yet, I would suggest it is just as important what legacy you leave. And I say that knowing some of you and not knowing others. But I think it's equally as true. I wonder what your funeral service will be like. Will it be tragic? Will it be very few people there? Or will there be lots of people there? I, I don't know. But will you have made the most of your life? Because ultimately... That's the question, isn't it? Funeral services are not about people's death. They're there because people have died, but they're there to remember people's lives. That's what defines a funeral service, isn't it? What they did with their life. What will you do with your life? That's the, the question, uh, really, that we're, we're considering this afternoon. Will you waste your life? As did King Jehoram. So, Here's my question. I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, so I know that Ian does this from time to time. Chats to the people around you. Does it matter what people think of you? Okay, not rhetorical. Maybe just a couple of people around you. Does it matter what people think of you? Be honest. Be honest. Does it matter? What do we think? Does it matter? And you've got to give more than a one-word answer, okay? I don't just want yeses and noes. Does it matter? Yes. Okay, so it does matter to the people that matter to you. It matters what they think of you. Okay? Yes and no. Okay. So, yes and no, but ultimately no. Is that a fair summation? <laughs> but yes and no. Okay? 
Anybody else? What do we think? There's no right or wrong answers, I promise. Okay, so, I'm trying to sum up. It's all kind of a yes and no. Yeah? I think that's right. I think it's a mixed, it's a difficult question to answer. I think questions in church are always difficult to answer because we sort of feel as though there should be a right answer. Uh, And so any question that makes us go, kind of, is a little bit awkward. Um, I think it does matter to some extent. But let me qualify that. I think as Tim was saying, if that's what drives us, what do other people think of me? If that's what motivates us, if that's always what we're thinking, we're in trouble. Right? Because you will basically have to be a split personality to try and please everybody. Because there are people that like, you know, I give an example, there are people that like carrots and there are people that like peas. And you can't be, you know, you can't like everything that everybody else likes. And you can't be what everybody else wants you to be. And if you try, you end up knackered. Right? Simply put, if you try and please everybody, you end up absolutely shattered. Because you can't do it. You just can't do it. And I'm sure if there are any parents with multiple kids here, they will uh, attest to that fact that you can't please all of your kids all the time. Because right? they all want different things. Come on a Saturday morning, some of them want to do one thing, some of them want to do another thing. Go on holiday, some want to go to the beach, some want to go to the pool, some of them want to go to eat food. And you can't do all of those things at the same time. And we can't please everybody. And we shouldn't live with our primary focus on what other people think. But it does matter what other people think. Because it indicates whether we are living in the right way. Actually, what other people think of us, in the big sense, indicates, tells us whether we are living in a way that is faithful to God. What matters is living the way that God intends us to live. That's ultimately what matters. And actually, what people think of us will work itself out if we live as God wants us to live. And that's, as we look at Jehoram's life, I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see the fact that when he died, the fact that nobody cared was a result of the fact that he didn't live the life he was supposed to live. He, didn't, he wasn't the king that he was supposed to be. He wasn't the man that he was supposed to be. So let's look at Jehoram's life. We're going to skip through it quite quickly. But let's just go through the, the passage, pick out the, the key points, really. Um, a bit of a... I was going to use the word highlight reel, but with Jehoram it's, it's not highlights, it's lowlights. So, look down at verse 4. When Jehoram established himself firmly over his father's kingdom, first thing he does, he put all his brothers to the sword, along with some of the princes of Israel. So these princes of Israel, people who had um, given up their kingdoms elsewhere to to come back to Israel, to be in a place uh, where God's rule was. And he knifes the lot of them. As soon as he comes to power, he is so insecure that he thinks, the only way that I can secure myself in my kingdom is to get rid of all other potential kings. And so he kills them. Let's move down to to verse 6. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now Ahab is the sort of the marker for how to be a bad king. So if you read through the Bible, as the kingdom of uh, Israel splits and it becomes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, 
the northern kingdom goes bad from the start. So if you were to sit down and make a list of how the kings go, so if you read through kings, there are some kings that are good, and they live as God wants them to live, and they lead the people in a good way, and there are some kings that are bad. The northern kingdom goes bad. Every single one of them goes bad. And then the southern kingdom is a bit of a mixed bunch. Some good, some bad. But Ahab is the absolute marker for what it means to be a bad king. And the description of our, of our friend Jehoram is that he walked in the ways of Ahab. That's what he was like. He was a terrible king. Selfish. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We keep going down through his life. Verse 8, we're told that Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. That's, what, that's the effect of this king. He brings rebellion. People revolt against him. People don't want to be in his kingdom. They don't want to be un, in, under his rule. And we see Jehoram responds to that in verse 9. In verse 10, we hear of another place, Libna. They revolt against uh, Jehoram's kingdom. Why? Because he had forsaken the Lord. There are people in his kingdom who say, because of the way you're ruling us, because of the way that you are going against what God wants, we don't want any part of you. We don't want to be in your kingdom. They're more godly than he is. And then verse 11, look further down. He had also built high places on the hills of Judah and had caused the peoples of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves and had led Judah astray. This is what this king is like. He doesn't lead people to goodness. You know, we we uh, look at rulers, we look at our prime minister, and ultimately what will define them is what they do for the people. Isn't that how we look at uh, rulers and leaders? What do they do for their pe people? This is what Jehoram did. He led them astray and led them into prostitution against God. They hoard themselves. It's a really strong language. This is the description of this king. And he gets this, this fascinating letter from Elijah the prophet in verse 12 through to, to verse 15. Because of what he has done, because of his evil, because of the fact that he murdered his brothers who were better than himself. That's what Elijah tells us. Not just that he murdered his brothers, but these were better men and he killed them to protect himself, to protect his kingdom. Because of that, plagues would come on his people his wives and his children and his possessions would be taken away and he would die from a disease that God would send. That is, that is the result of this king's life. God was judging him. And yet, it's not done. 16 and 17, the Philistines, the Arabians, are stirred up by the Lord against Judah, his wives and sons, and that the promises that God has said come true. And then he dies. Verse 18 19, after all this, the Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. In the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great pain. His people made no fire in his honor, as they had for his fathers. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years. He passed away to no one's regret, and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. What a great life. Or not. What a, what a sad story. There's just nothing positive in there, is there? No goods. No redeeming features. No 
but such and such liked him, or, but he was nice to his kids, or, but he got on with this country. Just nothing. All negative. All of it. And maybe we could look at that and just say, he was obviously just a terrible man. We need to be good people. That's, That's what we should get out of this Bible passage. We need to be good people. Just don't be like Jehoram. Don't kill your brothers. That's a great application. Don't kill your brothers. Okay, great, you know. But there's more there. And really to know why Jehoram made such a big mistake, we need to know what he ought to have been. What ought to have been as a king? When David comes to power as king, Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart, when God appoints him and and anoints him, he says in 1 Chronicles 11, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over my people Israel. When God appoints a king for his people, he says you're to be a shepherd. You are to care for the people. You are to look after them. You are to guide them to good places. You are to feed them. That's what a shepherd does. He looks after the sheep. And the king was to be a model and a leader for the people. He was to be the best person. He was to be the best example of what it meant to be a man. Or a human, even. That's what the king's job was. He was to lead. He was not like the sheep. He was over the sheep, but the sheep looked to the shepherd. How are they to live? What are they to do? And listen to what God says of the future kings of Israel when he gives the law to Moses. Go back to Deuteronomy 17. It says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, the law being the first five books of the Bible. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. See that? May not be lifted up above his brothers. Not quite murdering his brothers. That's the complete opposite. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That is what the king is supposed to be like. He is supposed to be dedicated to God's word. He's supposed to read it day and night. He's supposed to know it. He's supposed to have his own copy, which he had written out by hand, so that he would know who God is, what God has got in store for his people, what God's design is for his people. And Jehoram was so far short of that. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see, the king is to learn to fear the Lord his God. And Jehoram never learned that. He never had any desire for that. He was too busy looking after his own kingdom. He wanted to be king. What the king should have exampled above all else is that he isn't the greatest. It's not about him. That's what Judah's kings, Israel's kings, were supposed to show. Whilst everybody else would look at them and say, The king, it's all about him, his kingdom, his people. What they were to show was that it's not about me, it's about God. It's all about God. Even I, even I the king, am a subject. 
I am created. It's not about me, it's about God. They're not to point to themselves, to make much of themselves. They're to point to God and make much of God. That is what Jehoram should have been. They're to say, there is somebody far better than me, far greater than me, far more powerful than me, far more loving than me, far more kind, far more good. They're to point to the good God. That is what kings were supposed to do. That is what people are supposed to do. And as we look at the life of Jehoram, it would be very easy for us to say, that's alright, I'm not that bad. I'm not like that. And yet at the heart of what Jehoram does is what's at the heart of all of us. We are people that want other people to say, they're great. How great are they? How kind, how lovely, how strong, how gifted, how wonderful. That's what we want people to say about us. We want people to think well of us. And yet, just as the king was supposed to point to good, so every human, every man and woman, every boy and girl is supposed to point to God. That is what we were created for. If we went back to Genesis 1, if we had time to go back to the creation account and say, mankind was created in God's image. No, maybe to say, oh, look at them. They look like God. They kind of like God. They image him, they point him. That's what we are here for. So does it matter how we live? It does. Because we are to point to God. Our witness to people, and we all have a witness, right? Witness is a word that we can, it becomes very Christian-y and churchy, and you know, you'll hear people talking about it witnessing. And, but we all have a witness. We all make an impression on people. The people we're around, our family members, the people we work with, the people at school or uni, the people we spend time with, we all have a witness to them. We all make an impression. They all go away thinking something of us. Now the question is, what is that witness? Is it that they go away thinking, wow, they're a great person. I want to be more like them. Because if that's it, then we fall into the same trap as Jehoram. If that's where it stops, then we're just like Jehoram. It's got to go beyond that and point to God. So here's my next question. What were we created for? Tim Keller's got this thing, I don't know whether you've used it here at Wellgate, it's uh, it's called a catechism, a series of questions and answers which go through the, the Christian faith and ask the big questions. And he's got this question, how and why did God create us? I wonder what you'd respond to that. Left hand, how and why did God create us? Here's the answer in that catechism. God created us, male and female, in his own image, to know him, love him, live with him and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. Why are we here? We are here to be in relationship with God, to know him, to love him, to be loved by him, to be known by him, 
but ultimately to glorify him. That's what we're here for. We're here not to say, how great am I? We're to say, how great is he? That's the purpose of the church. That's the purpose behind your, your vision. This year coming, to, coming up, the reason to reach out to people, to plan and prep, and I've, I've forgotten the other ones, and do and follow up. What is the purpose? The purpose is to show how great God is. And so people come to know him themselves and come to glorify him themselves and to come to say, it's all about God. That is the purpose behind it. We should live to his glory, not our own. We should live to point to him, not ourselves. But just like Jehoram, we fall short of the mark. Maybe not quite as spectacularly as Jehoram. In fact, I'm fairly sure. Maybe not quite as obviously and spectacularly as Jehoram did. And yet we do, all of us without fail, fall short of doing that. Because by nature, we're sinful. We're too self-involved. We're too busy looking at ourselves. And we're pro- we are proud people. When we do things well, we think, how great am I? And when we fall short, we look at other people and go, I wish I had what they had. I wish I had their gifts, their talents, their confidence. But behind that is that desire for other people to recognize that we've got those things. It's still about us. Whether we're proud or whether we look at other people and think, oh, I'm so pathetic. At the heart of that is is still pride. It's still going after our own glory. I wonder if people could see your heart and see your thoughts. I wonder if they could look into your very soul, and see what you were about, I wonder how many of them would come to your funeral if they really knew you. You see, we do a great job of masking our true selves, a a great job of hiding the, the filthiness, the dirtiness, the ugliness of our hearts. But if people knew the things that I thought, would they really want to come to my funeral? Or would I too be like Jehoram? That if they really knew me when I died, it would be to no one's regret. Only you know your inner self. Only you know your hearts and your own thoughts and minds. But the truth is, we're far more ugly than we ever let on. Inwardly, the truth is that we are. We're just very good at masking it. But God knows. God knows how ugly we are. God knows that this is a room full of Jehorahs. we just not written about in the Bible text. Our inability to live for the glory of God is clear to us when we're honest with ourselves. We are just like Jehoram. And yet, that inability leads us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the true man who lives completely to the glory of God, who was completely selfless. He is the new Jehoram, the true king, the king that should have been. As all those kings of Israel 
and those kings of Judah's, even David, fell short of what they ought to have been, but not Jesus. You could look into Jesus' heart and not see any selfishness, any ugliness. He was pure, living completely for the glory of his Father. And he went to a cross to take on our sin, our ugliness, our guilt, our shame, so that we might have a chance, a second chance, to live for God's glory. Hundreds of years after King Jehoram dies to no one's regret, King Jesus dies on a cross so that we might go free. It's funny because Jesus' funeral, if you want to even call it that, is a couple of men in the dark putting him in a borrowed grave. It wasn't spectacular. People mourned, but in quiet and in private. And many celebrated. And yet, even at the cross, there's a Roman centurion who said, truly this man was the Son of God. And even at the cross, there was a man, a dying thief, who recognized that Jesus was the Savior. And we need to recognize that. When we look at our own sinfulness, our own ugliness, and say, Jesus is the Savior. He is our hope. In Him we trust. And in Him we have new life. Our sin is dealt with at the cross, but we have now new life for us to live. So what are we to do? What are we to do in light of the gospel truth, in the light of King Jesus? What does it mean for you to waste your life, even as a Christian, even as somebody who knows Jesus? You see, a wasted life is a life that impacts no one with the gospel. It's a life that points no one to the good news of Jesus. It's a life that tells no one of the hope that they have in Christ for their sin to be forgiven, for them to know God, for them to find satisfaction and fullness. A wasted life is a life that cares for no one in suffering by pointing them to their Saviour who suffered so that they might go free, that they might have hope of life without pain. It's a life that doesn't point people back to the gospel when they are struggling with sin and condemnation. It's a life that doesn't confront people with sin when they have forgotten their need of Jesus or that he is the saviour and that they are saved. That's a wasted life. You can be a Christian and waste so much of your time, so much of your life by not connecting with other people by not pointing them to Jesus, both in the church and out there in the world. You can live, you can get by, and yet you can waste your life, even as a Christian, you can waste this life that God has given you. See, a wasted life is a life that is lived for yourself and is not lived for the glory and fame of Jesus. And how easy it is to waste our how easy it is for us to go from this place on a Sunday and spend Monday through to Saturday living for ourselves and not pointing to the glory of Jesus. Having a witness that is of no impact. Having a witness that says, how great am I? We're good at that. We're all good at that. 
we're all good in, in, you know, some of us are in obvious ways, some of us in much more subtle ways of having a witness that says, I'm good, like me. And it doesn't get beyond that. Will you waste your life? Will you waste this week? Or will you make the most of it and point to something far better than what you have to offer? Will you point to the good news of the gospel to a lost world? Will you make the most of this year? Will you see your primary identity in the fact that you have been saved to bring glory to God as a human, as a man, as a woman, as a boy, as a girl? Will you see your primary focus in that I am here to glorify God? And so I am not first and foremost a a student or a pastor or whatever it is that you do a mother, a father, a husband, a wife an accountant a dentist whatever it is that you do primarily you are there to live for the glory of God and therefore you are a dentist that lives to the glory of God and therefore that affects how you work it affects how you parent it affects how you are a husband or a wife Because it's not about you. It's not about what people think of you. It's about telling them about Jesus. It's about living to the glory of God. That is what you are here for. Whether you know Jesus or not, you are created to bring glory to God. And he will bring glory to himself through you. But his desire, our desire for for all of you, My desire for you is that you would live for the glory of God, knowing him, loving him, being known and loved by him, and pointing to Jesus as the saviour. That's what this vision is about for the next year. It's a desire to point people to the glory of God, to say he is great, he is good. And that is what your job is about. That is what your studies are about. That is everything. First and foremost, it is about bringing glory to God. And so you have to work that through. I haven't got time to go through every single profession, just in case there's somebody in here who's a, an orthodontist or, you know, a bin man. Or, but it's your responsibility to say, how will I live for the glory of God? What does it mean for me in my life to live for the glory of, of God? And it's... We have to take the time and the effort to work that through, to pray it through and to ask God's help so that we might live to his glory. And we'll do it imperfectly because we still have that sinful nature within us and we still want people to think well of us. And yet God forgives us because of Jesus and he works in us and he continues to work in us because he will glorify himself in us as his people. And living a life for the glory of God is a life that is not wasted. And it's a legacy that will last longer than Lance Armstrong. It's a legacy that will last longer even than Neil Armstrong. It's a legacy that will last for eternity. Because God will be glorified through all eternity through his people. And that is what we are part of. We are part of an eternal project to bring glory to God.
Let's take just a couple of minutes just to, to think, to pray, to respond. And then I think we're going to sing again. Father, we ask that you would hear our prayers because of Jesus. Lord, that you would forgive us our sins because of Jesus. Lord, we confess that, Lord, all too often we are concerned with our own glory, with people thinking well of us, Lord, and not concerned with your glory. Father, help us to live for your glory in whatever sphere it is that you have placed us. Lord, and we pray that our witness to this world, Lord, would be more than think well of me. Lord, that it would be a witness that says, Jesus has made a difference. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Lord. Lord, help that to be our witness, we pray. Lord, in his name and because of his righteousness, we come to you and ask these things.